Hello everyone and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Natasha Livingston, the podcast editor for Backbench. In this very first episode, I chatted with director of Backbench Sam Bright and editor-in-chief Daniel Clark about the two most divisive issues in global politics, Brexit and Trump. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. Hi guys, welcome to Back Chat. Hi, hi Natasha. So for the benefit of our listeners, um, do you just want to briefly introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Sam, so I'm the uh, long-suffering uh, founder and director of Batbench. So diving straight into it, um, we can't really discuss British politics without covering the biggest constitutional dilemma this country has faced arguably since World War II, and that, as we all know, is Brexit. Who voted Remain and who voted Leave? So I was actually too young to vote at the time, but I was and continue to be a supporter of leaving the EU. I think the biggest problem for me is the democratic issue, and I always make reference to Tony Benn's five questions for power, um, especially number four and five, to whom are you accountable and how can we get rid of you? And the European Union leaders simply can't answer that question. Having said that, the way that Theresa May and the Tories are going about it, I think the whole thing's going to be an absolute disaster. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I kind of have a lot of sympathy with um, Daniel's uh, position there. I voted Remain, although my, my ballot was rejected um, because my signature wasn't the same as on records, apparently, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that. But anyway, I intended to vote Remain. And um, Conspiracy. I know, I know. The Guardian were actually investigating that at one point, um, but dropped it because it was the classic Andrew Adonis style conspiracy theory. Um, but anyway, I similarly have um, quite a few reservations about the EU. I sort of reluctantly voted Remain. I think there's a huge democratic deficit currently um, between member states and the European Union as a whole. And the, the kind of idea of a European superstate makes me quite uh, nervous. It sounds quite Orwellian to me. Um, but I think since the referendum, I've got progressively more Romani or Romani, um, depending on whether you speak to my family or not. I think the government impact assessments were a really big moment for me, um, showing that Brexit is actually going to hit the constituencies that voted for Brexit a lot harder than elsewhere in the country. And I also think it's going to be virtually impossible to sort of knit together the patchwork of free trade deals that will actually um, make Brexit economically worthwhile, to be honest. But what about you, Natasha? How did, how did you vote? I voted Remain, uh, and I'm currently living the life of the Erasmus exchange student in Paris, so I'm very much benefiting from the EU right now. But, you know, as you've said, the EU has many problems related to accountability, red tape. Um, but I just personally wasn't very well persuaded by the economic arguments for leaving. And I disagreed with some of the others relating to freedom of movement. But I think it's really interesting that out of the three of us, then I'm the only one who actually managed to vote. <laughs> <laughs> Seems ridiculous for an organisation that sort of preaches democratic engagement. Um, what's the what's the mood where you are there then um, sort of on the continent towards Brexit? Have you got any sense of that at the minute? Yeah, one of the things is that I've seen a lot of Frexit 
posters around, which is not what I was expecting to see. Um, but also within the university that I'm, as an exchange student here, I'm taking a module about the EU. And there's about 80 people in the class. Obviously, the lecturer was talking about Brexit, and he got every single student in the class to introduce themselves and then I realised I was the only English person in the whole class so every single Brexit problem was directed at me <laughs> for the whole two hours <laughs> so I can say in that university circle it was very much of the Remain vibe so I've seen the two sides of it um, yeah. but yeah I've been surprised by the amount of anti-EU feeling that I've seen around the city. That's interesting. It sounds like you're representing our country a lot better than some of our politicians are, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) We can also, I think, um, talk about the referendum itself, because generally it was a shambles on on all sides. Yeah, what do you guys think? A a toddler could have done a better job than both of the sides. Um, There there was just the government manipulating figures and using taxpayers' money to send around that leaflet that got everybody frothing at the mouth. There was Nigel Farage's weird immigration poster that I released was it a week a week before the referendum which actually didn't make much sense everybody was just hurling insults at each other but you know you'd be hard pressed looking back to find a solid fact in those god knows how many months it felt like two years yeah no I I completely agree it it showed some of the worst um, aspects of political debate and to be honest Um, I think a big problem as well with the referendum um, as, as, as an idea was that no specific mandate was given. There was, it wasn't like a general election where there's a manifesto and if that party wins then they can enact the manifesto. It was sort of a combination of vague spurious promises about immigration and public finances and um, who governs us etc. And that's essentially mean that the whole process has been a shambles and no one um, is responsible. Nigel Farage isn't responsible, Jacob Rees-Mogg isn't, Boris Johnson isn't. It's been left um, to those who didn't really believe it in the first place. And there's no defined set of, of things um, that we can say, this is what Brexit means. Um, and I think it's quite ironic that the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg actually articulate a vision that's really quite different Um, from the sort of thing that lots of Leave voters had in mind, I think primarily to do with globalisation and free trade. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg wants some some sort of free trade nirvana, Um, whereas I think a lot of Leave voters have more sympathy towards Donald Trump and his sort of isolation um, mentality where the economy is concerned. So I I think the whole thing has sort of started as as a shambles. Uh, like Daniel said, and has just um, has just continued in that vein uh, henceforth. I do think one of the most concerning things is is that it appeared that the government didn't have any plan for if it didn't go their way and then the Britain like they did voted to leave because David Cameron resigned the day after when he said they hadn't and it seems to have been in a shambles since then. Theresa May really went into a job where there was no job description, she had no idea what she was meant to do and she was under pressure to trigger Article 50 which in my opinion she did far far too early. Yeah yeah completely agree encouraged by Jeremy Corbyn which is quite ironic. Um, I, I, have a, I have a friend whose dad works in the, in the Foreign Office and apparently they were um, told to ignore um, the post-Brexit 
um, scenario. What happens if we if we leave? They were told, no, we're not doing any planning for that, um, you know, from high ups within the department. Um, and then, you know, it's no surprise, really, that we've we've ended up in the situation that we're in. Mm. Yeah, it's quite shocking, really, but not surprising. <laughs> um, I also think it's interesting, Daniel, that you were um, too young uh, to vote, because um, one of the things that I found particularly annoying about the campaign is that they didn't really have any emphasis on either side of explaining what the EU actually does. And I think that is part of a disconnect between um, generally privileged politicians and the rest of the public who aren't really that engaged all the time, especially with the nitty gritty of, you know, the single market and things like that. Um, and often an argument for lowering the vote to 16 is that um, if they did that, then they would maybe introduce that sort of education into schools. So would you have liked to have voted? Well, I would have liked to have voted. I mean, I'm, I must emphasise that I was literally about three months off of being able to vote. So it was frustrating more than anything else. But I think the, the, there is a reason why I couldn't vote. And whilst it was frustrating, I w didn't once in, um, entertain the idea that the voting age should have been lowered to accommodate me. We do need some sort of cutoff. I mean, if you can't buy alcohol and cigarettes by the time you're 18, then I don't see why you should be able to vote. But that does not mean we can't have some form of political education, which at the minute is just non-existent. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big supporter of political education in schools, um, but likewise not a great fan of votes at 16. Um, I, I just think that it's, it's, it's a real failure that we don't educate our young people more about politics and about things that are going to fundamentally shape their life. Uh, like you said in the introduction, you know, this is the biggest political issue, Brexit, since the Second World War, and we're not educating people about it. One thing I would say, though, is that um, I, 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 I knew fuck all about the single market, about the customs union, about, about anything, um, to be honest, any of the real details to do with Brexit. And I think a lot of journalists who were in my position um, were exactly the same. Um, and so I, I, I wonder whether we need a much wider focus on um, democratic engagement and um, better information um, being, being articulated both to the public at large and to journalists who are, who are conveying um, things to the population. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. The Brexit campaigns were situated in a very different political context with a different prime minister. And as we all know, since David Cameron's resignation, Theresa May has been at the helm. What are your specific views on how she's been handling Brexit? All in all, I actually feel quite sorry for Theresa May. I think she would have been a really good prime minister when there was nothing really big going on. So a bit like a caretaker prime minister, sort of to ease people in gently. But as somebody who's meant to be negotiating, leaving the European Union, uh, her whole business being consumed by foreign affairs, which quite clearly she's not actually got much of a grasp on, I think she's just failing. And the, I mean, I, if she's prime minister this time next year, then I'd be very surprised. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It seems like the, the knives are getting sharpened as we speak. Um, I think George Freeman said this week that um, he would enter the race if um, he was asked. And I think we might see a lot of um, Conservative MPs saying similar things um, in the near future. I think that, to be honest, there's just been a lack of direction throughout the whole process. And obviously, as we've mentioned, that 
in part is due to just the nature of the referendum and the campaigns. But I think also Theresa May has to take some some blame for it. Um, Tories sort of salivated over her Mansion House speech, but it didn't produce any sort of agreement either within the Conservative Party or between the European Union and Britain, which surely should be the mark of a of a leader. Um, and obviously her, her decision to hold a general election was absolutely catastrophic and has kept her hands um, tied throughout the whole process. Um, so, I, you know, it, it seems like the, the attitude within the Conservative Party is uh, allowed Theresa May to take all the blame for this going badly and then... Um, ouster and bring in someone else who can um, take them forward into the, to challenge Jeremy Corbyn at the next election. I, I agree in the sense that, um, I mean, even the videos that were circulating of her dancing in South Africa, I mean, I obviously, <laughs> you know, any prime minister dancing is going to be funny, but I kind of think whatever she'd done in that situation, she would have been ridiculed. So I, I don't know. It's Again, it's that sense where people are kind of just attacking her maybe to an extent that is unnecessary um but also again you know if we can just sort of epitomize her approach to brexit with the phrase brexit means brexit which is just the most empty phrase i think (laughs) anyone has ever heard i think that symbolizes how things are going (laughs) i think the whole dancing thing though as well it it sort of symbolized her didn't it like it was very awkward it was quite stilted it was like she didn't really know what she was doing but I, I think subsequently, I don't think it's damaged her in the way that, say, the, the bacon sandwich incident damaged Ed Miliband's. Like, somehow that had a much greater traction at that moment in history. At the moment, we're just sort of like, we're just a bit sort of sympathetic towards Theresa May. We're like, oh, you know. Bless wish her. She didn't. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, 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 the speech that she made at, at Tory party conference, where the letters fell off and she had a cold, I think that actually made her slightly more endearing to the nation. Um, and she's kind of owned this dancing incident a bit, like the, the tweet yeah, she that she did put her tweet. out. That yeah. was very good. That was a good tweet. I mean, obviously, I, I doubt it was her, but she's obviously hired a good communications person, so she deserves credit for that at least. So yeah, I, I doubt that Boris would, uh, would would. I mean, Boris has done far worse actually. He's mowed down a child in Japan and got yeah. away with it. So <laughs> you know. <laughs> Moving on from Theresa May specifically, um, there's been lots of catastrophic predictions lately in the news about what will happen if we get a no deal Brexit. And the potential problems have ranged from UK driving licenses not working in the EU to passports not being valid. And um, just to add this in, I have a chihuahua and my mum has given her a pet passport. So my mum will be very distraught if her pet passport is no longer valid. Um, But um, yeah, and then so on the 18th of October, um, there will be the EU summit where both sides are meant to agree on a future plan. Um, so do you think we can get a solution or is it going to be a constitutional crisis where Marshall Hour is not going to be able to go abroad <laughs> or, <laughs> um, or is even a second referendum on the cards? Well, I, I personally think that we're heading, and I hate to say this um, because of the whole Chihuahua thing, which is grits at my grits at my heartstrings, um, that we are heading towards a constitutional crisis. Um, I think, for one, we've got to agree a deal with the EU, obviously, and it seems like both sides have got red lines that they're completely not willing to budge, um, and so a deal in the next few weeks would seem quite impressive. And then 
the bigger obstacle in my mind is being able to, to take it through Parliament. It just seems that Theresa May will have to make more concessions to the EU and the ERG, so Jacob Rees-Mogg's wing of the party, hate a Chequers agreement. So what are they going to think to any new sort of deal? I just can't see that they're going to vote for that. Um, and that, at the end of the day, I think that means that we've got a sort of political deadlock that can only be broken by either a second referendum um, or a general election. And a general election, in my mind, probably won't produce a decisive result. So a second referendum it is. Let's all just start campaigning now. I have a massive problem with the idea of a second referendum because I think that that would dredge up a lot of anger and resentment. I mean, there's been convincing research to show that a lot of um, people from less economically developed backgrounds voted to leave the European Union to effectively give the establishment, so to speak, a bloody nose. What are they, how are they going to react when the establishment turn around and say, you got it wrong the first time, let's try again. I think more people would vote to leave than they did originally. And it would just be a complete insult to the intelligence of a nation. Personally, I know it's a little bit of heresy to say, I am not completely opposed to the idea of leaving the European Union without a deal. I don't see too much of a problem with going to world trade rules. It's not ideal, obviously, but I think it would be better than floundering about and leaving in such a way that we're left with a deal that means the European Union control what we do, but we don't have any say in that. I can see I can certainly see that happening. I just wonder what the what the process is for us to get to WTO rules, because if Theresa May comes back with a deal and then the the ERG rejects it, essentially, does she then say put her hands up and say, right, you guys take over, which I can't see her doing. I, I, I sort of think there has to be a political mechanism before we go down that route or Theresa May's got to resign and Boris Johnson or someone's going to take over and I don't see the formula within the Conservative Party for that to happen either since the ERG are actually a minority there I just it just doesn't there just seems to be something missing there I don't know whether I'm I'm not reading it properly no the, the numbers definitely don't add up whichever way she turns she's She's not going to survive as Prime Minister much after the 29th of March next year. I, I think she could possibly scrape by because at the minute they've got, she has an opposition that are arguing about everything other than the Tories. And then there are the Lib Dems, some of whom don't even bother to turn up to vote mm. on Brexit. And then there's the SNP who seem to just shout at each other. It, it's, it's really a recipe for disaster. I don't think it's going to go very well for her. But I think... She could possibly do it. I don't know. It depends how good her whips are, really. Yeah, yeah. And since um, Williamson and his tarantula have departed, they, uh, <laughs> they, don't, they don't seem to have been, been able to keep order quite in the same way. But, yeah. Well, we'll see. So generally, as a nation, Brexit is often seen as a case study for polarisation. Um, with an ever-increasing gap between remain or leave and left or right. But across the pond, an even more divisive issue sits in the White House, and um, that issue is Donald Trump. So what are everyone's views on the infamous president? I'm glad he's an issue and not a person. <laughs> he is just sort of this all-encompassing problem now. 
I mean, I, I read something this morning, actually, that I thought was summarised in quite nicely. It's from John Cassidy, the New Yorker. And it said that uh, Trump is a menacing dingbat, um, which, which I think is just, just, a, just a nice sort of phrase, really, more than anything else. Um, but yeah, just various problems with Trump, which I've sort of ranted on about for the past few years. Um, not least is the economic agenda, which, like Brexit, I don't think will deliver for the working class. Um, I don't think you'll be able to rescue traditional industries. And I think that, as Daniel was mentioning earlier, you know, this sort of crisis of confidence that um, left behind voters have, I think that that will be exaggerated when they realise that Trump can't deliver on lots of his economic promises. The one thing that maybe could have was his um, promise to invest heavily in infrastructure, I think it was one trillion pounds worth of infrastructure investment, which we haven't heard about uh, since the day he was elected. Uh, it's been shelved um, in favour of just just moaning about Obamacare relentlessly. Um, and also his, his kind of attitude towards Obama in general um, and Obama era reforms like Obamacare and uh, the Iran nuclear deal, climate change, etc., is quite you know it does border on frightening i don't like to um get caught up in the outrage of it all but i think in particular on iran i think he's he's pursuing quite a quite a dangerous line to be honest donald trump he's just a disaster really waiting to happen he sits behind his computer and he tweets and tweets and tweets um and sometimes every so often he hits the mark but i think the mark he hits is an arrow guided by his advisors and the people in his cabinet the one saving grace is that he did hire people who actually do know what they're talking about which is quite a pleasant idea economically his economic policy isn't isn't that bad i don't think i think it could have some positive effects but there really is no way of knowing until we get to 2020 and we can see definitely um what economic changes were a result of his policies or which were a result of obama a few years beforehand um however you know it's still just depressing that the americans had to choose between either donald trump or hillary clinton start choosing whether you want to shoot yourself or stab yourself <laughs> do you not think he's, he's going to get impeached before 2020 Daniel? No, no. Well, at least I hope not, because the person to replace Donald Trump is going to be Mike Pence, probably. And Mike Pence is a massive disaster. I mean, you know, you think Donald Trump's bad, but he takes social conservatism and then puts it into the oven, winds it up to 250 degrees and then just leaves it there until it's black. I mean, it's just horrific. I, I, I really, really think that when the Democrats want to impeach Donald Trump, they're not thinking about what's going to come next. This was the man who said in 2002 that condoms are very, very poor protection against STDs and he didn't like the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. He probably didn't like anything to do with most things, to be honest. Um, and I don't see why he changed his mind as soon as he became president. God knows what he was thinking when he decided he'd be Donald Trump's vice president. Probably yeah. that he was going to be impeached and he'd be able to take over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a very interesting game of Cluedo. 
has emerged in relation to the anonymous New York Times letter. Just to recount for maybe anyone who hasn't heard about it, the author claimed that senior aides were staging uh, many internal crews to limit the collateral damage of Trump's presidency. And this is not the first time it's happened to Trump. Um, the book Fear by Bob Woodward from the Washington Post and Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff all tell similar stories of internal resistance. And this is the question on everybody's mind, which is, who did it? I mean, it's Daniel. <laughs> got it conversation over yeah that's it that's it we, 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 we figured it out right there no but i really hope it was mike pence that would just be the funniest thing and i think um most people have read the or most people are interested in this have read the uh analysis pieces the the sort of um the the phonetics of um the letter to um that journalists try to use to decipher uh, who exactly it was, and Mike Pence was one of the options, um, so that would have been quite funny. Um, my informed guess, though, um, isn't Daniel, it's it's Nikki Haley, who's the ambassador to the UN, um, for, for, for a few reasons. Um, firstly, that she, it's known that she has presidential ambitions, and um, she's also quite highly thought of within the Republican Party, um, she seems to be quite a free thinker within the Trump administration, and she's got away with it, which is um, surprising. She's one of a few. And she's been marginalised by the appointments of John Bolton and Mike Pompeo over the past uh, few months. So she does have good reason um, to be annoyed. Who knows? Who knows? That's my guess. I am. Um... I, I found it really amusing reading all the, the linguistic analysis pieces because it's really clever how they work these things out about who could have written what. And um, all of them said that the writer would most probably be male, white and conservative, which, you know, really doesn't narrow it down in Trump's administration, does it? It's about 90 percent of them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Mike Pence who wrote it, but a, a little part of me doubts it. Although, personally, I do hope it, it is him. I also wouldn't be surprised if this letter actually comes a lot closer to something to do with something from one of Donald Trump's instructions or even him himself, which sounds a bit out there. But the book, the timeline is a little bit strange that Woodward's book, Fear, was pub, was it was being publicized. Then this letter came out. Then the book was published. It, there seems to be. It seems to be all very convenient that there was this letter saying it's really not that bad. And then the book comes out and says it's really, really bad. And they seem to cancel each other out a little bit. So, it, I mean, I, it, I doubt Donald Trump sat in the Oval Office at three o'clock in the morning and wrote a letter. But it could be somebody who actually is very, very close to him and wants to salvage his reputation. Yeah, I, I, I agree to some extent. I think that it's quite I, I kind of doubt the motives of the person if they were genuinely tried to trying to undermine Trump because surely Trump will just like double down now and he'll try and root out the traitors he'll try and get his agenda back on course he'll you know he's been talking about the swamp seemingly every day now I think someone said it was like the uh, a, a script for for Shrek uh, he was talking about the swamp so much and um, so I, I just I I think there is an ulterior motive, whether it's someone trying to set up a presidential run or trying to show within the Republican Party that there is a resistance or whether, like you say, there's um, there's a grander conspiracy that's that's maybe trying to get 
Trump back on course, I don't know, but it doesn't seem to fit together perfectly. I mean, why didn't they just come out and resign and then write it, write it under their, under their byline for the New York Times? That's, you know, sort of the kind of issue with the whole yeah, thing. It, it doesn't seem to have any type of direction. In fact, I do think it's a little bit weak not to publish your name. I mean, if you are going to criticise the president quite so openly, quite so viciously, then, you know, at least stand up and uh, say it out loud because over 50% of the planet will probably agree with you. Of course, it could be Melania Trump getting really fed up of her husband and wanting to throw him to the dog spot. Yes, yes. I mean, she seems to be so fed up already. That would be great. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, This would be very interesting if it was Melania, but... um... Trump was very angry about the letter denouncing the failing the New York Times and declaring treason on Twitter. I mean, I just love that tweet, capital letters, treason. Could this topple Trump? What, uh, what do you think? Uh, I, he gets angry about everything. I, I feel like he'd get angry if a fly landed on his desk and it inconvenienced him. I don't think it's enough to topple him, to be honest. I think if you combine that with the Russian investigation, at the minute what's happening is there's too many attacks on all sides. And every single one of them are missing the mark. You've got to ask why. He's quite clearly doing something right, as much as we might hate to admit it. Some Something that he's doing or the people surround him are doing are making sure that he is managing to cling on to power. However, we do have the midterms in two months, I think. It's in November, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that is going to be when we really figure out what's going to happen to Donald Trump. And um, please don't ask me to predict what's going to happen there because I've not got a clue. Yeah, I, I'm exactly the same. Just, just, yeah. What what Daniel said basically. I think that um, the the letter didn't say anything that we don't know already. I think there's already been reports that economic advisers have, have snatched um, executive orders from his desk to stop him tearing up NAFTA and other other sort of scandals like that. So it didn't tell us anything new. So I doubt it's going to take him down. But yeah, the midterms are the big challenge if the democrats um win the house and the senate the russia investigation becomes a lot more fruity um, they'll be able to subpoena trump officials i imagine they'll really try and um, turn up the heat on trump and his team which will cause him to fight back and will put him in a very tricky situation i imagine um, i imagine his his agenda in general will probably grind to a halt as well um, as we saw during the Obama era, when the Republicans held Congress, it was it was virtually impossible for him to pass anything. Um, and after the midterms, we'll start talking about presidential candidates as well, um, which is going to be fun again, especially the Democrats, because I personally don't see where their contender is is coming from at this stage. I don't know whether you two have any thoughts on that. Oh, Hillary Clinton, possibly. She doesn't know when to give it a rest, does she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I personally, I'm not going to make any predictions because who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bernie, Bernie, Mark too. Bernie actually, <laughs> Bernie actually helped us produce the only viral video we've had on the Bad Bench Facebook page. So if, you, if you're still listening to the podcast, um, go onto our Facebook page and look for it. It's Thug Bernie, and I think it got like three million views. Um, it's a it's a zinger. So he's got he's got the social media potential. And if Jeremy Corbyn's to believe, then that's all he needs to win a general election, and become prime minister. 
As we all know, Labour won the election. But don't get, don't get me started. <laughs> we'll leave that for another week. <laughs> On that note, um, I think we should probably bring it to a close because we've chatted for way longer than we should have done. Um, but hopefully everybody found it interesting. Can I also, one final note, we launched our um, Patreon page this week. So encouraging people to um, become Backbench patrons and give us a bit of money to help, um, help us to grow and expand. And a few people donated the $2 a month rate, which gets you a special shout out on the Backbench podcast. Um, so we've got this week, we've got Isabel Housecroft, Chris Reed and Maddie Assan. We love you all. Thank you so much for donating. And if you want to chip in with just $2 um, a month and get your name um, on the Backchat podcast, then go to www.patreon.com forward slash bbench and patreon is spelt p-a-t-r-e-o-n i mean it's what everybody wants isn't it why, why would you not want to be shouted out on the on the back chat podcast well that's <laughs> that's the thing as well that, that's the thing because we've got backbench mug on there and i didn't know about your chihuahua so like the next <laughs> stage is backbench pug isn't it yeah <laughs> so you know maybe that'll be on there next time you log on who knows it's worth having a look here now with more news, debate, and opinion. So, we've shared our opinions, but what do you guys think? Get in touch and write an article for Backbench. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.